We are on to chapter two, which I sent out this morning, the new handout, which says chapter two on it. All right, you got it? So we're moving through Tanya, chapter two. We're not going to finish chapter two today. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to have to stop mid-chapter uh, for our hiatus. And what do we learn until now? <clears throat> Here's where we're holding in Tanya. We are, we are holding is the altar have introduced that we have two souls, right? We don't have one identity. We have two identities. One soul, which is a full identity, it's a source, it's a drive of life, we called the animal soul. The animal soul is uh, very natural, right? That's one of its other names, the natural soul. We all know that soul very well. It is concerned with its survival and with its uh, self-perpetuation and self-preservation. It's centered around itself, and we discussed it's not bad. It's not a bad soul. It's not evil, but it's not holy. It doesn't have any holy qualities necessarily. It could do a lot of good because egos could do could decide to do a lot of good. There's a lot of uh, self-centered reasons to do a lot of good. That's definitely something the animal soul is capable of. And today we're going to be moving on to the second soul. <clears throat> and I want to, before we read, I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> How do most people define their Judaism? What do I mean by that? The fact that someone's a Jew. The fact that someone's a Jew. How do people conventionally define that? And we're not talking about if you ask somebody to think through it very deeply and philosophically. We're talking about just the conventional subconscious accepted notion. What makes somebody a Jew? What defines your Judaism? What do you say? Go ahead and unmute. Let's get some ideas on the table. Having a Jewish mother. Having a Jewish mother. Having a Jewish mother is definitely the number one criteria. But Max, I'll give you some pushback to that. Having a Jewish mother is circumstantial, which means it's true. That is the circumstance that determines or proves that this person is Jewish. But that only is a marker that tells you that this person's a Jew and another person's who wasn't born to Jewish mother is not Jewish. So my question is, so what is that quality? All right, let's go a little bit deeper. Education. Gail's saying education, right? So if you're educated as a Jew and you think as a Jew and you feel as a Jew, that makes you a Jew. Heritage. A heritage. What do you mean by heritage, Jenny? Where you came from. Like where your mother and where you came from has your background. Right, so that's the same thing. You're born to, you're born to a Jewish yeah. mother. So that's it. You're a Jew. Having a Jewish soul. Elke is saying having a Jewish soul. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. We're already walking into the into the uh, yeah, into the yeah, realm yeah. of souls here. <laughs> yeah, what was that, David? I, I was going to say the the belief in the supreme God, the the one that uh, brought us out, and the belief in the goodness of the soul. 
So a certain belief, believing in God, believing in souls. I want to give a little bit of pushback to what you're saying, David, and to what Gail, what you are saying. So Gail, you said believing in God, is that correct? Let's say there's a Jew who doesn't believe in God. And not, let's say, <laughs> we all know that there are such Jews out there. Well, I said, Are they less Jew than, than, than you and me? No, I said education of the Jew, you know, being oh. a Jew. So let's say somebody has no education. Let's say somebody has no education. Never afforded a Jewish education. Does that make them less Jewish? No. Oh. So then education is not what makes you a Jew. Understand well, what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. Education is a feature that when you are a Jew, one of the things that we do is education. Yulia, what do you say? I'm just saying that from my perspective, it's a combination of different things and believing that you are a Jew, whether because you have a Jewish mother or you have an education or you were treated as a Jew by other people or because you believe in something or because you don't. Um, I think it's just your internal perception of yourself as a Jew. So you're saying as long as you think and feel that you're a Jew, then you're a Jew? So you, let me ask like this. Let's say there's somebody who was, who was born as a Jew, born to Jewish parents, but never knew it, never knew it. And let's say at the age of 60, their mother, her, the, the, his or her mother, I'm saying this is stories that, that happen. Uh, you know, this is not totally hypothetical. The mother on their deathbed reveals that really you're a Jew. But let me tell you something else. Let's say somebody is born and nobody ever tells this person that he or she is a Jew and they die. Can you imagine a Jew living their entire life and they never knew they were a Jew? Their entire life they thought they were a Gentile. Is there, so they were never conscious of anything. They never had that knowledge. Are they still Jewish? And do they become Jewish only when they find out that they're a Jew? It's genetic. <laughs> genetic? <laughs> <laughs> it came from Moses and Aaron. And but then we're the people back at Sinai and the 600 at Sinai. Oh, you like and that guy. And, right. the, and their descendants. Right. So, Yulia, what did you say? I'm just saying then we're back to the only criteria, the first one that Max said, that it's you're born to a Jewish mother and then you're right. a Jew and, does, and nothing else matters. Oh. I don't know if it's, I agree with that necessarily. You don't, right. Which means like this. I agree with that. I didn't disprove what you said, Yulia. I just want to flush it out and see, see if we like that definition, that it depends on your I don't like any definitions, but, but I am familiar with somebody who was raised as Catholic, let's say, mm -hmm. and on their mother's dying bed, learned that they actually born to a Jewish mother, which makes them a Jew, but they remained a Catholic and perceived themselves as a, as a Catholic their remaining life. Oh. oh, that's a good question. Let's say somebody... Let's say somebody says, let's say somebody says, uh, I don't want to be a Jew anymore. I want to convert out or whatever. Have I? Yes. Let's one, go of my mother's, one of my mother's many husbands. Uh, no, actually, I take that back as a friend. Uh, was born a Jew, married a Jew, divorced the Jew, changed to a, be a Catholic, to marry a Catholic lady. And when he went to the conversion, the priest told him, he says, you can do what you want, but you were born a Jew, and a Jew you will remain, even if I baptize you as a Catholic. Oh, wow, that's uh, that's very interesting to hear that the 
You know, it's it's a question you should know. This question is something that Jews have grappled with, uh, especially in the modern era, a lot in the modern era. In the modern era, I mean, you know, really in the age of enlightenment since the Renaissance. And there's always been this debate, what makes somebody a Jew? And you many times have people or groups of Jews calling other people not Jewish. Oh, that person is less Jewish. They do this, they're not Jewish. I'll tell you something very interesting. I'll tell you something very, very interesting. <laughs> One of my first experiences when I first came here to Michigan, was it five and a half years ago, something like that? How long ago, Max, was that? We first came, five and a half years, something like that? I, th I think that's right. It, it yeah. might be a little more now, but... Maybe a little more, yeah, maybe, maybe it was a little more. Time flies, all right. So I was doing a lot of cold calls then. I didn't know anybody. And there's a young, uh, a young professional here in Bloomfield Hills. And um, I met with him, one of the first people who I met. And he was very nasty to me. You know, really gave me, uh, just very, very cold, very, very cold. And, uh, you know, I was fresh. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have much of a backbone then. You know, you're really, you know, we're just, just starting out over here. It was a little bit difficult. Like it was an uncomfortable meeting. And that was that, you know. He basically let me know that he's not interested in me and doesn't like me and uh, doesn't care for what Chabad has to offer, which is okay. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's typical. It's, it's, uh, it happens. <laughs> Six months later, I went to his office before Pesach. I was in his building anyways. I was in his building. I knew another Jew in his building and I dropped off matzah. It's one of the Rebbe's uh, campaigns that every Jew should get the handmade Shmura matzah for, for Passover. Um, so I gave out matzah. And then I, I remembered when I was in the building that I know this guy. You know, I, I didn't speak to him since that one first time. Let me go bring a matzah. I went back to my car, got a box of matzah, and just walked right into his office and gave him the box and wished him a happy Passover. Anyway, it was just funny. <laughs> That night, all of a sudden, I get a notification that this guy accepted my Facebook request from six months earlier, right? All of a sudden, I get a notification. Now you are friends with this guy. I'm like, oh, I, I forgot I even ever friend requested him. Okay. So I saw that he's okay. You know, he's accepted my friend request. After Passover, I asked him for a meeting. Called him up, asked him for a meeting. He says, sure, Rabbi, you can come. I walk into his office, and the first thing he says, okay, Rabbi, I got to speak to you about this. What do you think of me? What do you think of me? I say, what do you mean? He says, listen, I'm reformed. I'm reformed. I look at the humanistic reconstructionist Judaism and I say, come on. They're not Jews. What is that? That's... And I know that the conservative look down at me. I'm reformed. And they say that we're not Jewish. He says, Rabbi, you're orthodox. <laughs> what do you think? If reform, if even reform is totally... I was, I think I was his first exposure ever to, uh, to somebody to, you know, what we what, what somebody would call orthodox. It's a good story, huh? <laughs> so what did I answer? This chapter is going to give us the definition of what it means to be a Jew. And the, the point of the answer is not just like that we have a good answer for the question, okay? You know, what makes you a Jew is this or that. It's a very meaningful idea. 
to see ourselves for what we truly are, to believe in ourselves for what we are, and to know our strengths, to know the power, what it means to be a Jew. That's today's class. You know, I want to share with you a story. Before we begin reading inside, I want to share with you a story. And before the story, I want to share with you a little video. This video, two-minute video, is important not just for the story, but it's going to be important for later on in chapter two as well. This is a video from 1992, January 1992, exactly 30 years ago. So the Rebbe, this was the Rebbe, Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, starting in 1986, he started a weekly uh, tradition that every Sunday he would stand right outside of his office and be available for anybody to meet with him, anyone who wanted to meet with him, Jew, non-Jew, man, woman, child, Chabad, not Chabad, not religious, made no difference. Anybody wanted to meet the Rebbe, he's available on Sundays. The reason why the rabbi did this is because it was impossible to the the demand of people who wanted to meet with him was was just beyond possible to you know to actually make those meetings. So he said, at a minimum, he'll make himself available. And he's giving a dollar to everybody. And the reason why the rabbi is giving out a dollar is because the rabbi had a philosophy, a beautiful teaching, that whenever two people meet, something good must result for a third. When two people meet, the ball has to get rolling. A mitzvah has to happen. A third person has to benefit. So the Rebbe would say, we're meeting. I'm going to give you a dollar for you to give to charity. It's like that our meeting is now helping a third person as well, is causing a mitzvah. Okay, so the Rebbe was giving out dollars. Now the Rebbe would do this for hours, hours and hours. The Rebbe would stand there, and the Rebbe wouldn't sit. In this video, the Rebbe is 90 years old. Getting close to the Rebbe's 90 years old, we're talking about. And, um, or 89 years old, 89 years old in this video. And many times they, they offered the Rebbe that, why don't you sit? <laughs> the Rebbe should sit. And the Rebbe would say, there are so many Jews standing outside in the cold and the rain, and they're on their feet. It's inappropriate for me to be sitting comfortably when all these people are, are, are standing and waiting in line. So everyone would stand. If you're standing, he's going to stand. This specific day of this video that I just showed you, the Rebbe stood for a total of, at, of nine hours and whatever, however, however many minutes. It was split into two. So the Rebbe took a break in between. Nine hours seeing people. And the Rebbe saw over 15,000 people just this day. Just this Sunday. In the end of January 1992, a month later, there was suffered a stroke, which really paralyzed him and robbed him of his ability to speak. And two years later, he passed away. There was once an elderly woman who came to meet the Rebbe and comes online. Sometimes the line was longer, sometimes the line was shorter, but it was a line. <laughs> you waited in line and it took time. And she comes to the Rebbe and the only thing she tells the Rebbe is, Rebbe, how do you do this? I'm standing in line for, you know, whatever, an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and I'm falling off my feet. And you're standing here, and you're, you're, you're and, and, and how are you not fatigued? You know? <laughs> and she's now on her way home. The Rebbe still has a few hours ahead of her, of, uh, ahead of him. 
He's never responded to her that when you're counting diamonds, you don't get tired. That's what Deborah says. When you're counting diamonds, you don't get tired. What does that mean? What does it mean that you're counting diamonds? Deborah's meeting Jews, I'm counting diamonds. I'll tell you one more story and then we'll learn. <laughs> it reminds me of another diamond story. So the Rebbe was the seventh leader, the seventh Rebbe in the Chabad dynasty. The seventh Rebbe, what's called Chabad Lubavitch. The Alt Rebbe was number one. The Rebbe was number seven. The fifth Chabad Rebbe, so the Rebbe's predecessor's predecessor, his name was Rebbe Shalom Dov Bershnirsen. Right? And he, he, was, uh, he spent his life in Russia. And he once said, there was once a very wealthy Jew, a chassid, who came to visit the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. That's what he was called, the Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Dovber. And he told the Rebbe, Rebbe, why do you spend so much time giving attention and giving love to all the simple Jews? What, you know, what business do you have with such simple Jews? Let the other, you know, the, 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 the small league rabbis deal with them. You're such a big rabbi. Why are you bothering yourself with all these simple people? <laughs> this is what this chassid asked the Rebbe. The Rebbe didn't answer the question. You know, so, 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 certain questions don't need to be answered, right? <laughs> so the Rebbe continued conversation with this individual. And this individual was a diamond merchant. That was his business, his trade. Sold diamonds, traded, traded in their diamonds. So the rabbi in the middle of his conversation says, how's business going with the, with the diamond business? And this host says, oh, it's doing wonderful. And the rabbi says, do you have any chance to have any diamonds? I'd love to see some. So the host says, sure, I always have diamonds on me. You never know when you can make a sale. And he pulls out from his, from his breast pocket uh, a satchel of diamonds, and he lays them out for the rabbi. And he starts telling the Rebbe, this diamond and this other diamond and the qualities of each diamond and how expensive this one is. He's describing the diamonds and all their features. And the Rebbe in the middle says, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. To me, this, these all look the same. Yeah, whatever. They're different colors, different sizes. All these little uh, nuanced qualities you're talking about, I just don't know what you're talking about. I don't see it. So the Chassid chuckled and the Chassid said, Rebbe, <laughs> To understand diamonds, you need to be a maven. So the Rebbe said, aha, to understand Jews, you need to be a maven. You understand? To understand diamonds, you have to be a maven. You have to know how to look at a Jew. You have to know how to look at a Jew. And it's not only about looking at a Jew, it's looking at ourselves. What is a Jew? The Alter Rebbe is now going to introduce, to, in, introduce us to our second soul. Let's read. We're at the beginning of chapter 2, titled The Peace of God in You, which is page 31 in your books, in the handouts that I sent out this morning. The second soul in a Jew is a peace of God above literally. This soul is called the divine soul. Or the godly soul. There you have it. What makes a Jew a Jew? Or in other words, so you're born to a Jewish mother. Then what? <laughs> Is it just, okay, if you happen to have a Jewish mother, then we'll call you a Jew. 
No, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a distinctive quality here. What makes a Jew a Jew is something called a divine soul or a godly soul. And this divine soul is a piece of God, literally. What, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Maybe when we look at the chapel and sound that means. Literally, God took a piece of himself and put it in you. And we are now all walking around with a piece of God inside of us. And that's the secret sauce of a Jew. That's the power of a Jew. But most importantly, that's the identity of a Jew. What makes you a Jew? You have a soul. That's the identity of a Jew. There's so much to learn about the soul. And we're not going to learn all about it in this chapter. In a certain way, the entire Tanya is teaching us a little bit more about the soul. Teaching us how to unleash the powers of the soul. How to get in touch with the soul. But I'll just tell you on the most simple level. Whatever you know about the animal soul, the godly soul is the diametrical opposite to that. The animal soul is self-centered. The divine soul doesn't even know what that word means. Ego. Worried about myself. It's not that it's humble. Oh, I think about myself less. It doesn't even know that the self is an, is, is an agenda. It's a piece of God. It's here to serve. It's here to connect with God. So the animal soul is defined by its ego. The godly soul is defined by God. <laughs> that's all. That's all. That, that's all it wants. That's all it knows of. That's its nature. Right. The animal soul does not have a God in its world. In its worldview, it only knows of itself. It's very self-absorbed. The godly soul is focused on God. So you could, it has a whole different way of thinking and the processing. It has a totally different agenda, has different impulses, has different drives, has different dreams, the godly soul. The altar wants to try to identify and define what the soul is. What does that mean that our soul is a piece of God above? So the altar is going to walk us through a few different texts which support the idea of the divine soul. And when we study these texts, we'll also be able to start getting a better definition, a better understanding, we'll have better imagery to learn about this divine soul. What does it mean that we have a divine soul? So let's begin reading. Let's continue. The idea of a divine soul is suggested by the verse describing man's creation and God blew into his nostrils the breath of life. This is from Genesis, six days of creation, right? We know God creates the world, six days. On day number six, God creates the first human being, the prototype, his name was Adam. And it's very interesting. God first makes a body and the body was dead. The first God made a body. And the Torah then says, and then God blew into his nostrils, the breath of life, and that was the soul. And then Adam became alive. But it, it's interesting. It says that God blew the soul into Adam. Now, that's very significant. Because if you look at the entire creation narrative, how does God create everything? By speech. And God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. And God said, let there be grass and trees. And there was grass and trees. God said those things. But when it speaks about the soul, God blew. What does that mean? What does that even mean? What's the significance of that? What does that tell us? And the altar of it says, really, the idea of God blowing the soul is not only about Adam. If you look in our prayer liturgy that we say every single morning, we say the exact same thing about our souls. Let's read. Let's continue reading. The altar of it says, and the same expression is used regarding the individual soul of every Jew. The soul, you blew it into me. We clearly say, God, it's a beautiful prayer. It's, the first, it's actually the first prayer, the second prayer we say in the morning. Um, there's something called the morning prayer, the morning blessings. Very beautiful, short, takes four or five minutes to say it. It's really a time to thank God for life. Thank God for another day, the blessings of life. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful prayer there called Elokai Neshama. My Lord, the soul that you have given me. We thank God for our souls. And we tell God, the soul that you have given me is, is pure. Tehorahi, you gave me a pure soul. And we say in this prayer, Atonafachtabi. You have blown it into me. Nafakta, the exact same word as in Genesis when we speak about Adam. So God blew the soul into Adam. God blows the soul into us. What does blowing mean? You know, a lot of things in the Torah are hints. They're keywords. And the keyword is really has a tremendous idea behind the word. When you read the Torah, you read scripture, it's, it seems just like a trivial word. You know, okay, okay, the Torah uses a term. But really, there's, there's tremendous depth always. So what's the depth of the idea that God blows the soul into us? Comes Kabbalah, comes the Zohar, and explains what does it mean God blows the soul into us. Let's continue reading. The significance of God blowing the soul into man is stated in the Zohar that unlike speaking, which uses relatively little breath, one who blows, blows from his innards, meaning from the innermost depths of his being. For when a person blows forcibly, he exhales with a deep-rooted inner energy. Okay, very simple idea. When somebody speaks, we could speak for a long time. People could speak for hours on end. Some people, not only they could, but some people actually do it, right? <laughs> but we all know speech is something which right, we are capable of speaking. I'm saying, unless you're somebody who's not well and you know, out of breath, but healthy people really have uh, pretty much an infinite capability to just talk and talk and talk and talk. It doesn't use up that much energy speaking. But try blowing a balloon. <laughs> How long could you blow balloons for? Blowing, we all, we, all, uh, we all know from experience, takes a tremendous amount of energy, which is unlike speaking, which uses a very little amount of energy. So the Zohar says, Kabbalah says, blowing represents taking your innermost, deepest level of energy 
and letting it out, which is why you run out of it so quickly because you're taking from the reservoirs, you're taking so deep and you're letting it out. So what's the significance? When we say God blows the soul into us, it represents that God is giving us a soul that's coming from very deep within him. That's the message from Kabbalah. What's the significance of God blowing the soul? Let's continue reading here. The biblical metaphor of God blowing in man's soul suggests the deep inward attachment God has with the soul. All right, so we have one, we have one source. We have one idea to the idea of the godly soul, the divine soul. It's a piece of God. God blows it into us, which represents a very deep source, a very deep bond that God has with the soul. Let's continue reading. Another source from the sages. This intimate connection between the soul and God is depicted in the teaching of the Midrash. The Midrash says the Jewish souls have arisen in the mind of God before the creation of the world. Okay, here we have another idea. The Jewish souls have arisen in God's mind. Arisen in God's mind. What's the significance of that? We don't know yet. But we have a quote from the sages. Jewish souls have arisen in God's mind. Let's continue reading. And one more idea, one more source to work with. We're at the top of page 32. An additional source, oh, that's a mistake. An additional source depicts this intimate connection as a parental relationship. As the verse states, Israel, my firstborn son. And another verse, you are children to God, your God. We have at, at least two verses in scripture. Really, we have more than two verses. This is a theme which comes around uh, in scripture quite a few times. We speak a lot about it in the high holiday liturgy. We are God's children. God calls us his children. So whatever the relationship is between a father and a child, a mother and a child, that is the relationship between God and a Jew, which is a pretty big statement, right? The Torah doesn't say things just to make us feel good. You know, cheap, cheap ideas. This is a real idea. What does it mean? So the altar Rebbe takes all these ideas. We come from very deep within God. We have arisen in God's mind, and we are God's children. What does all this mean? The altar Rebbe tells us. Let's, let's continue reading. The explanation of these descriptions. Here we go. Just as a child is derived from the brain of the father, so too the soul of each person in Israel is derived from God's thought and wisdom, so to speak. How are children created? How are children created? Children are literally a piece of their father and mother. But right now, for this conversation, let's focus on the father. Every single part of the, of the child is, is, is from the father. Where does it come from? So biologically, we all know that there's a seminal drop. There's a seed. 
And that seminal drop is the beginning of a child, right? <laughs> and then nine months of pregnancy gets developed and gestated. And okay, then you have a baby after nine months, but a seed. In Jewish mysticism, it says something very interesting. Within that seed, within that physical drop of seed from the father, there is a spiritual energy, like a spiritual piece of, 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 of genetic code, but a spiritual gene that comes from the brain. This isn't a physical matter that comes from the brain. It's a spiritual energy that comes from the father's brain and gets transmitted through the seminal drop. And it is that energy from the brain, from the father's brain, which really is what gives the energy, the spiritual life to the child, the spirit, the identity to the child. So every child comes from the father's brain. Exact same thing. We are God's children. We all come from God's brain, from God's wisdom. When the sages say the Jewish souls have arisen in the mind of God, the same way a child does. You should know that from the perspective of modern medicine and uh, biology, this idea of Jewish mysticism is uh, challenged. You know, it, uh, does the seminal drop really have a quality, something, substance from the brain? And modern biology says no. But Jewish mysticism says, yes, correct. There's no physical matter from the brain, but it's a spiritual energy that comes from the brain. And Jewish mysticism says that's also why, uh, the, as we see, uh, you know, very practically, that the process of a male releasing the seminal drop involves the brain. There's a lot of brain activity. It's not a brainless thing. The brain is very involved in that moment. And the reason is because literally there's an energy which comes from the brain and gets transmitted through the seminal drop. Exact same thing about us. That's our relationship with God. We are a piece of God the exact same way we are a piece of our father. And our children are a piece of us, which is unbelievably powerful. Okay, let's read the next paragraph. I want to give you a heads up about the next paragraph. The next paragraph deserves, just this paragraph deserves an hour class in and of itself. But we're not going to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to read it very quickly. And maybe, maybe next time, when next round of Tanya, maybe we'll go more in depth over here. The author is going to get, is going to wade into a very philosophical idea. The author just wants to make a very simple point that when we say, that a Jew comes from God's wisdom, we mean it comes from God himself. God's wisdom is God. That's what we refer to. Okay, and I'll read it quickly, and I think you'll see on your own that it's a very complex matter, and uh, we're just going to read it, and we will store it away for another time to explore, because we want to stay focused on the main point. Let's read God's wisdom is one with him. <clears throat> Concerning God's wisdom, the Zohar states, he is wise, but not with wisdom as we know it. Rather, in the case of God, he and his wisdom are one. 
as Rambam, Maimonides writes that unlike humans, God is simultaneously the power to know, the knower, and the known. But this concept defies coherent mortal comprehension. As the verse states, can you find God by searching? And it is also written, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, etc. Y'all understand what just happened? Okay, good. All right, it doesn't matter, right? Well, let's just, the idea is that we come from God himself. That's the whole point the author has to make. And the author has to explain that also, has to defend that position from a philosophical point of view. It's not for now. Before we continue with Tanya, I want to take a moment with you and explore the idea that we have this soul. You know, when we, when somebody hears that they have the animal soul, and when you learn what the animal soul is like, we could very easily identify with it. Yeah, I know my animal soul. All right, been there, done that. I, I'm very much in touch with my animal soul on a daily basis. Every time you feel hungry and that becomes a priority in your life, right? I'm hungry, I gotta go eat. That's priority number one. That's, that's your animal soul right there. So we all know our animal soul. We all know our ego. We all know, right? We all... We all know how to be very self-centered at times. <laughs> it's very natural to us. But sometimes when people hear about they have a godly soul, you have a powerful godly energy within you. Many people say, I don't, I've never felt it. I don't know. Where do I see it in my life? What do you think? What do you think? Where do you see the godly soul in life? I want to hear from you. Do you feel that you sometimes feel it? Are you ever in touch with it? Go ahead and unmute. Let's get some ideas. I think when you do mitzvahs, when you do something for somebody else without thinking about yourself or how it's going to affect you. You're saying, so when, when you do a mitzvah and you feel this desire to do a mitzvah, but it's not a desire which comes from a selfishness. Right. You really feel the power of the mitzvah. I want to do the goodness of the mitzvah. Yeah, very good, beautiful. What else? What do you say? Dr. Joel, what do you say? Dr. Joel, mm -hmm. if you're talking, you're not, you're, you're muted. Got to unmute. Oh, there I'm you. sorry. I, I said compassion, possibly, because when you have compassion for people, it's not a self-centered type of thing. You see something right. and you have compassion. It, it, you're not getting any reward for it or anything like that. It's a feeling. Compassion. Very good. Very good. I think so when you when do something... Oh, sorry, go, go ahead. So, go ahead, David. Sorry about that. How about when you're studying Torah or Talmud? And, and what? And you're feeling, you, you get in the feeling of what you're studying. You're, you're starting to absorb it. You're, you're starting to understand what it's for and, and what it's going to, how it's going to help your, your demeanor and, and your future, maybe not monetarily, but just your knowledge base. Your, your okay, interesting. I, I could debate that, but I think, the, I think the animal soul could also appreciate studying Tanya. Or and studying Talmud, but I see what you're saying, David. But I'm, I want to I want to define what you're saying better in a moment. But okay, I, I'm sorry for giving you a hard time. <laughs> Yulia, go ahead. I, I think from for me, any time that I'm either doing or thinking something beyond myself, 
that's not necessarily benefiting me, but thinking of community, society, humanity as one energy or nature or whatever, something that doesn't necessarily benefit me directly. I think that's my higher self, my higher self. Very good. You know, have you ever felt a moment where maybe life was comfortable? Life was fine. You weren't missing anything. You had everything you needed. You're able to afford all the bills and maybe even had extra and able to have money for vacations. And there's nothing wrong in life. But something is irking you on the inside. Something's bothering you that you want something more. You don't feel satisfied with life. That is, those moments is when we feel we're hearing the cry of the soul. The soul is pushing us. Why are you neglecting the godliness within you? So I think with the moments of a yearning, that could come from the soul. Also, when we feel the power of Judaism, when we feel the power of a mitzvah, we do a mitzvah, and a mitzvah just makes us feel good. Certain mitzvahs, it's easy to feel good. You know, when we help somebody, many times that it could, you know, we, we all understand why that makes you feel good. But when somebody puts on film, or when somebody lights Shabbos candles, you didn't save the world, right? You didn't save anybody from tragedy. You're putting on a leather box on your arm. You know what I'm saying? How, how, how inspiring could that be? <laughs> you lit a candle on a Friday afternoon. Okay. Is that, is that, is that, is the act itself inspiring? But when it moves us and we feel moved by a mitzvah or we study Torah and it just puts us in that mood, it get, we, we get in that groove. Many of these things we cannot explain from the perspective of the animal soul. The animal soul will, does not get moved necessarily from learning Tanya. We do a mitzvah and it, it, it moves us, it motivates us. We feel on fire. That's the animal soul. So the animal soul, the real truth is the animal soul is just as present in our lives. The godly soul, my apologies, the godly soul is just as active and present in our life as the animal soul. But we just need to uh, listen in. We gotta, we have to pay attention. But uh, when you think of it, the godly soul is very much there. And uh, the presence of the godly soul has a very profound effect in our life. And we're going we're gonna to explore this a lot as we continue learning Tanya. But I wanted to take a moment on that and reflect on that. Okay. We have 10 minutes left. <clears throat> The Alta Rebbe now is going to ask a very simple question. It's a simple question, <laughs> but it's a good question. And the point of the question is not just that we need to find an answer for the question. The point of the question is that it's going to propel us to dig deeper into this concept that we all have a soul, which is a piece of God, and that we are God's children. And it's going to give us a whole very deep understanding, which is going to be so fundamental to understanding who we are as a Jew, to understanding our relationship, the, 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 interconnect, the, the, the interconnection between all Jewish souls. But it begins with a question. 
Very simple question. Here's the question. If all Jews are a piece of God, then the assumption is that all souls are equal. If I take an apple out of the fridge and I cut it into pieces and I give one piece to my son Mendel and one piece to my daughter Shana, presumably both pieces are the same. They're going to taste the same, they have the same flavor, same tartness, uh, same density. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if it's a piece from the same apple, it's the same apple. So if we're all pieces of God, presumably all of our souls should be exactly the same. So let me ask you that question. Are all souls equal? What do you think? What do you say? Are all souls equal? <laughs> it's a tough question, right? How much do we know about souls? How do you measure souls? But I'll tell you, the answer is no. There's a tremendous uh, disparity. There's a spectrum of souls, tremendous diversity in the quality of souls. And the author is going to ask that question. If we're all from God, how is it possible? How do we explain the phenomenon, the reality that there's such a disparity within the levels of souls? Today, we're going to learn the question, but we're not going to answer the question. That we're going to do next class, God willing, whenever it is. But it's a good question. I want to learn the question with you. So here we go. We are on page 33. It says the evolution of souls, right? Part two, the evolution of souls. The author of it says, however, we find there are tens of thousands of different levels of souls, which in Hebrew is nishamot, nishamos. Ever heard that term, nishama, a soul? There's thousands of different levels of souls, one higher than the other to no end. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Every phone in the market could make a phone call. Every phone in the market could send a text message. I believe so, right? And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, basically any phone that you will buy could uh, surf the internet and stream a video on YouTube or Netflix or whatever you use to stream videos, all right? But we all know that certain phones you could buy for $100 and certain phones cost over $1,000. So if they could all make calls and they could all send text messages, they could all surf the internet, they could all stream a movie, what's the difference? What's the difference? We all know the difference. Each one has different capabilities. At the, at the low end, you have a phone that can, yeah, okay, it can make a phone call. And yeah, it can send text message. But it's a low quality phone. It could break easily. The keyboard doesn't work so well. There's no good battery. The screen is very low resolution. And, you know, yeah, it could do everything, but on a very, very low level, it's very slow. And then you have a high-end phone, which is powerful, has all these features. It moves fast. And the, 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 the screen is high definition and high vibrancy. Every part of the phone is stunning and beautiful and shining and quick to move. So, yeah, they're all phones, but they're different levels. Think about that as souls. Certain souls, all souls are more or less the same, but certain souls are just so slow and, 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 not, and are just not naturally there. It's much harder for this soul to activate its goodness and its spirituality and its godliness. And certain souls on the high end, the souls of righteous people, 
are just so spiritually in tune and so spiritually sensitive. You know, they're right there. Powerful souls. They have good cell service, right? And whatever they do is with power, is high definition. They accomplish it quickly and well, effectively and efficiently. That's the reality. There's different levels of souls. But the author is going to, you know, explain this concept a little bit more. Let's read it inside. To illustrate, here's the, to illustrate, let's read inside. The souls of the patriarchs, right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Moshe, Moses, our teacher, peace unto them, were of superior quality compared to the quality of the souls of these historically late generations preceding the coming of the Messiah. This is a classical Jewish idea. Earlier generations had higher level souls. As time goes on, the quality of souls that are entering planet Earth are of a lower level quality. So the author says, we live many thousands of years after the patriarchs and after Moses. <laughs> we are not at the high end of the spectrum of quality souls. Let's continue reading. Our generations are described in the Talmud as the footsteps of the Messiah. Interesting, the footsteps of the Messiah. What does that mean? So the author says, the term foot suggesting that these souls literally have the quality of feet compared to the great souls of earlier generations, which have the quality of the brain and head. A brain and feet are on the same body. They both belong to the same body. We all understand a brain is such a powerful piece of the body, such a powerful piece of machinery. And it's also so delicate, right? Brain matter is so delicate, so refined, that even the smallest nick could damage, God forbid, the brain. The foot, we all know, eh, <laughs> the foot is just a lump of, a, a, you know, a lump of, uh, a lump of, of, of thick, thick skin, and uh, you know some meat and bone, you know, and it could take a lot of it could take a lot of abuse to feet, right? You could kick it around. So think about that. There's a soul which is on the level of head and brain, so powerful, and then you have a foot which is like a you have a you have a soul which is like a the heel of a foot, right? Compare those two. So we find this idea in Judaism. We're like the feet of of of, of souls. We're at the bottom end of souls. Okay, let's continue. The author of it says, and even within a single generation, not just if you look at the whole scope of time, the whole spectrum of time, even if you look in within just one single generation, we similarly find this disparity between souls. In every generation, there are leaders in Israel whose souls are like the brain and head compared to the souls of the masses and ignorant people, which are lower. The same is true in every generation. Within every generation of time, there are higher level souls and lower level souls present. And the author of it says, let's continue reading. And this is true even on the most basic soul layer of nefesh. The author is going to emphasize the question. Every soul has three dimensions to it. And the most peripheral level layer or the most peripheral dimension of the soul is called nefesh. And that's the functional level of the soul. It's not the, it's not the higher elements of the soul. 
And the Alter Rebbe says, even on the level of Nefesh, even there you find this tremendous diversity in quality of souls. Right? Let's read. Even when comparing Nefeshos of higher souls with, nef- with the Nefeshos of lower souls, right? even on the low level of Nefesh, or Nefeshos in the plural, there is a major difference between them and quality. For every soul contains three layers, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. Okay, so that's the question. The question is, let's read inside, that this seems to fly in the face of the notion that every divine soul is a piece of God. How can all souls be equally divine when we experience such diversity in souls? We have a paradox here. On the one hand, all Jews, every Jewish soul is a piece of God. But on the other hand, some souls are so powerful and amazing. Some souls are just on a very low level. How do you explain this paradox? So the Alter Rebbe says, and the Alter is going to explain this. And this explanation is going to give us a tremendous depth into the evolution of souls, into the identity of souls. It's a beautiful idea. But let's conclude with this last section of time. The Altribus says, despite these vast differences, the Tanya will explain that this poses no contradiction to each soul being a piece of God. All souls do, in fact, share the same root. Here we go. The Altribus says, nevertheless, the root of every nefesh, ruach, and neshama, right? Every part of the soul, from the very highest level of soul to the very lowest of soul ranks, which are found in simple folk and the most religiously irreverent people. All these souls, without exception, flow from the loftiest divine energies. We all come from God, referred to figuratively in the Kabbalah, as Moach Ha'elyon, God's supernal mind, which is the supernal wisdom, Chachmila, God's supernal wisdom. So the Alter doesn't explain it yet, but the Alter says, despite this paradox, we all come from God. We are all a piece of God. How do you explain it? That will be next class. I want to conclude, dear friends, it's 8.30. I want to conclude with a video. And while there's still so much to learn about the soul, I want to share with you another two-minute video. I want to leave this one message with you, dear friends. Never define yourself. Never limit your identity as a Jew based on how much you do or how little you do, how much you believe, how little you believe, based on your performance. You know how many times I hear people say, I'm not a good Jew, or people say, I'm a bad Jew. You ever heard people say that? As a rabbi, I probably get it a little bit more than you guys do. <laughs> or even I'll hear somebody say, I'm a reformed Jew. Oh, I don't put on tefillin. I'm a reformed Jew. You're a what? Why, why are you limiting that? Why are you allowing, the, you know, however much you believe, however much you do, your soul. doesn't matter how much or how little you do. You have the power of the Jew within you. And if there's one message that we could walk away with, you know, just at the beginning of exploring what it means to have a soul, it's this message. We all have a godly soul. It doesn't matter how much you do, how little you do, that's your identity. And of course, the goal of life is to try to get as much, as in touch as possible as we can with it, and to unleash the power 
of the soul to its maximum. But for that, we have a lot of work to do and a lot of learning to do. So have a wonderful evening, everyone. And we're taking a little hiatus. I want to share with you a little story. All right. <laughs> a quick little anecdote. Whenever this was a story, the Rebbe shared the story a few times. Sometimes the Rebbe would, uh, would have his public fabringens. And sometimes the Rebbe would say, we're taking a stop now. We're, you know, we're going to end the fabringen. But the Rebbe would say, we're never stopping the fabringen. We're never stopping the gathering. We're just taking a break. And the Rebbe, a few times, shared a very interesting anecdote about his sister-in-law. The Rebbe had a sister-in-law, his wife's sister. Her name was Shana. And Shana, Shana Schneerson, she was killed in Treblinka in the Holocaust. And I think the Rebbe made a special effort to mention her name, you know, every now and then, just to make sure that she's remembered. And the Rebbe said that this little Shana, she was, uh, she was the previous Rebbe's daughter. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Rebbe's daughter, <laughs> they, 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 these weren't ordinary kids. These were, you saw the, a lot of personality in these kids. Little Shana was a very stubborn little girl. And when she would get upset, she would cry and cry, and there was no way to calm her down. So they would sometimes give her like a little candy to pacify her and get her to stop. <laughs> so this little Shana was probably a little girl. Once quipped, she said, she took the candy, she stopped crying, and she said, don't think I stopped crying. I'm just taking a little break. So the Rebbe would say, we're not stopping. We're just taking a little break. So we're taking a little break from Tanya. God forbid we're not stopping. We're going to continue learning Tanya. And we're going to continue learning for the next six weeks. We're not stopping. Uh, meditation from Sinai. By the way, we're going to be learning a lot of Tanya and meditation from Sinai as well. This is a real beautiful learning course. And I'm really, really excited. I really hope that uh, you'll all be joining. We'll be able to learn together. All right. Have a great night, dear friends. Take care, Alki. Take care, Max. We shall see you very soon. Take care. Next week at Sinai. Next week at Sinai. I love that. <laughs> we'll see you. Bye-bye. All right.